Please open your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew in chapter 5, and you were given a handout if you care to fill that out as we continue on with our series on the life and the pen of the Apostle Peter. As you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, I, uh, in the past I've come across a book. It started out as Twitter posts, and it became a book, that's my understanding, and I'm captured by the title of this book. The title of the book is this, A Child's Guide for Parenting. I love that. As you say, what's the, what's the gist of this book, A Child's Guide for Parenting? And, and it's parenting advice given from the perspective of toddlers. Interesting. A couple of quotes from this book are instructive to those who are parenting toddlers right now. This is what your toddler would like to say to you. Parent tip. Please don't call it fake crying. We prefer the term enhanced emotional response. Thank you. Another quote. You know, you never really leave time out. Most of us are just out on parole. Or how about this one? I would actually love to listen more. It's just that my ears are really picky. (laughs) I like that one. Or how about this one? All right, mom and dad, I heard a noise. And you told me it was just the house. So is it enchanted or haunted? I need to know. (laughs) One more. It's hard to take adults seriously when you realize that their greatest fears are Mondays and carbohydrates. (laughs) Yes, toddlers, those of us who are parents either in those years or, or looking back on those years realize that it's a time of excitement and energy and frustration and calling out to the God for mercy all the time. As a matter of fact, if we could summarize the, the, the lessons learned as a toddler, it, it would go something like this with three words. First, in life you have to learn to crawl, then you have to learn to walk, And then you have to learn to run. And then you have to learn how to fall and start all over again. You crawl, walk, run, fall, and repeat. That's not just observations for the toddler years. That's an illustration of your life spiritually and my life as well. We have to learn to crawl first. And once we have that forward motion, we can get up and and learn to walk, and after we have our balance, we can start running, only to find that we fall again, and we have to start all over. We crawl, walk, run, fall, and start again. This was also the Apostle Peter's story, and my, oh my, did he live this cycle. Crawl, walk, run, and then fall and start over. And this is especially true, not just in our lives, but in the Apostle Peter's life, when it comes to our relationship to a doctrine that is near and dear to all of us in Christ. It's the doctrine of the grace of God. As a matter of fact, we need to remember constantly, as Peter needed to remember, that the grace that rescues you also requires of you 
grace. Grace finds you. The grace of God finds you. As Carrie read a few moments ago from Romans chapter 5 and verse 2, you are introduced by faith into this grace in which you stand. This grace that sought you when you weren't looking and rescued you turns right around and requires grace from you. Someone once said, what's the difference between mercy and grace? And perhaps we can summarize it this way, not perfectly, but it gives a good picture. Mercy is when something that we deserve is withheld. Punishment. Judgment. Grace is when something that's not deserved is received. We find this salvation that we call grace in Christ. And it requires us now to turn around and reflect this same grace to other people. But how often... Is this our story when it comes to our life in grace? We crawl, and then we walk, and then we run, and then we fall. And it happens to be very common in the lives that we're living, and lives like Peter as well, that you and I regularly must relearn grace. We must relearn grace, not get re-saved. I'm talking about returning to the roots of the grace that saved us and living consistently with it. Not going off on extremes towards legalism or towards license. We have to relearn a grace that keeps us in a safe place. And Peter is exhibit A. Let's look at his experience in this growth process of grace when he too had to relearn it. I want you to see, first of all, his strong foundation in grace. His strong foundation in grace. Actually, I think we can argue this morning that Peter had had the best foundation in grace. Of all people unworthy of grace, a grace sought out people, uh, sought out Peter found him, rescued him, and began to mold him into a vessel of grace by none other than the -the on-site, on-the-scene presence of the Messiah himself. His hands and his moments with Peter. I don't think you can improve on that foundation in grace. He had the best foundation. You say, why? Well, first of all, because of what he heard. Letter A, what he heard. What did Peter hear? And right from the start of our Lord's earthly ministry, Peter heard over and over what we've come to call the Sermon on the Mount. Now this sermon was preached on several occasions. I think Matthew and Luke may actually bear that out as as an example. But also we see portions of the Sermon on the Mount broken up and used in other teaching venues as the Gospels reveal them to us. But here in Matthew chapter 5, we have the the manuscript of the sermon, if you will. And what did he hear that taught him grace? He heard this, that God's grace is treasured at the heart level. God's grace is not something merely about the externals in your life. It's not mere conformity to religion. It's not mere getting in line and and keeping that line straight in the name of good works. No, from the very start of our Lord's earthly ministry, and none other than the Sermon on the Mount, Peter heard with his own ears 
that God's grace is something that is treasured at the level of the heart where change must take place. As we're here in Matthew 5, if you look back at, the, uh, at verse 18 of chapter 4 of Matthew, you see Peter showing up. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And what happened after that? Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And they're by his side. And when we cross over into Matthew chapter 5 for the Sermon on the Mount, it says in verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. The Sermon on the Mount, even though we know of multitudes being there, was actually Jesus speaking and instructing his disciples and the, con- and the, and the crowd leaning in. Jesus is eyeball to eyeball with the disciples, including Peter. And what Peter heard in the Sermon on the Mount marked him as a man of grace, teaching him how to crawl and then then the walk and then the run. And here at the beginning, towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 17, Jesus kind of shows his hand with the theme, if you will, of the whole Sermon on the Mount. This is the battery of the whole sermon. Look at verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law, the Old Testament, until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, I came to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. But then he shows what that means in verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, it was just external. It was merely a show. It was driven by the fear of man. He says, unless your righteousness goes deeper than that, he says, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Right here, Jesus is saying, my kingdom, my rule over my people is about a righteousness that I give to them that is at the heart level and works its way out. It doesn't consist merely of external regulations that just control them from the outside in. No, it's a, it's a reality of grace. It's treasured at the level of the heart. And then he's going to go through the Sermon on the Mount and say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus will repeatedly take his hammer and strike the nail to make the point that it's not merely external. This grace transforms you at the very heart level. And then we go to the, right here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we have what's called the Beatitudes. And where do they start? In a dark place. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Blessed are those. What does it mean to be blessed? It means to be in a place to be envied. If if God is opening your eyes to see how, how poor you are at the very heart level, the inner man level, because sin is there and it seems to just own you, you're in a good place if you see that because the next beatitude says you'll mourn that. 
The next beatitude says it's going to turn you into a gentler person and you're not going to be so judgmental because you're worried about your own heart more than other people's problems. And then the next beatitude says and you're going to hunger and thirst for a righteousness that you can't conjure up. You're going to hunger and thirst for a righteousness that you can't just read a guideline book and say, okay, if I do these things and don't do certain things, I'm okay. No, because you still see your heart. And you find that you are a beggar at the heart level. And you're like, Lord, unless a righteousness invades me from the outside, I'm lost. I love that. Beatitude in verse 6, though, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness outside of themselves, for they will be satisfied. That's where the grace of God comes in and rescues you and requires of you. Not only will you be a gentle believer, verse 5, a person of grace, but you're going to be merciful in verse 7. You're going to be extending grace to others, forgiving. You're going to be pure in heart. This grace will make you pure at the deepest level. You're going to be a peacemaker. And when you stand out like this as a person of grace, you will be persecuted, verses 10 through 12. Great, great setup, right? But this whole thing of grace that Peter heard in person taught him that God's grace is treasured at the heart level. That's where it invades, and that's where the transformation begins. You know, for several decades, this church housed a Christian academy, K-12. through I attended, from kindergarten to fifth grade, Calvary Christian School in Roseville, Michigan. Now it's called, it's a Christian school of Faith Baptist of Clinton. They've moved over to a different church. And in fifth grade, my family and I moved to Clarkston, so I, from fifth grade... Till my senior year, I finished at Springfield Christian Academy. I'm a, I'm a product of Christian education and Christian schools in southeast Michigan. But I can say something out loud that I think the CCA folks can relate to, and it's this. Sometimes, some people would communicate to us as students that, well, look, if you just don't drink, you just don't smoke, don't chew... Don't let your hair get long on you guys. If there's hair in your ear, there's sin in your heart, they would say. Don't listen to things with drums in them. Oops. Don't have sex. Don't go to bad movies. Or at least don't get caught in any of that. Then you're a mature Christian, right? Can we be honest with each other? We can look in the rearview mirror and see in the not-too-distant past in our lives a rigid legalism that said perform, don't get in trouble, and you're okay. And you know what happened? Grace still found us. And we found out by God's invading grace that is much deeper than that. Those are points that can be talked about. But that we're, when we're talking about change from the inside out, Peter's hearing this. Man, can you think of a better schoolroom than Peter had? It's not only because of what he heard, but secondly, he learned grace because of what he saw. Let's let her be. What he saw. What did Peter see firsthand as he was molded into a grace person? What he saw was this, that God's grace is freely offered to those who reject it. 
Imagine that. Uh, you're here in Matthew. Remember what we find in Matthew chapter 10 as uh, the larger group of, uh, or the disciples, the 12 disciples are being sent out on a short-term mission trip ahead of the Lord into different villages to announce his coming and to announce that he is Messiah. Our Lord had to give them instructions for what they're going to face. And already there's, a, there's the sparks of a growing resentment from the religious establishment against Jesus of Nazareth by the Jews and the Jewish leaders. And so as he equips them for this short-term trip, look at chapter 10, verse 5. It says that Jesus, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. And he said, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was his message from day one. And his first audience was the audience that ultimately would reject him fiercely. And it wouldn't just be the leaders by the time Jesus is hanging on a cross. It's the multitude that the leaders swayed into saying before Pilate, crucify him. Yet it's to these Jews, Jesus makes his offer of a kingdom. The ones who would reject him. Peter saw that. Peter was getting this instruction. But it wasn't just the rejecting Jews that Peter saw grace extended to. Especially that last week, right before the cross. That Tuesday, from sunup to almost sundown, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the high priests, they were just peppering him with accusations and questions. And every time Jesus answered them, even with stern words, he was extending mercy to them so that they would repent. That's what grace does. God's grace is freely offered to those who reject it. And it's not just... Uh, the enemy's on the outside of the group, if you will. But Peter was there in John chapter 13, at the beginning of the upper room. I want you to look at this passage with me. In John chapter 13, we're in the upper room, and watch this. Judas is present at this point. He won't be by the end of chapter 13. But he's here still, looking for an opportunity to betray. And it says in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, it was, it was right now, this week, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or he loved them to the uttermost. The highest expression of love. We say, like, what happened? Here's what happened. Verse 2, during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, and Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, what happened? He got up from supper, and he laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. 
You know, Peter would never forget that scene. He's in that scene. He's actually going to have a little argument with the Lord in the next couple verses. But he would never forget what we just read in the first five verses as he looked back. Wait a minute. Not only did I open my big mouth and tell Jesus he can't wash my feet, but Judas was in the room. And now I know what was in Judas's heart and what he was involved in and the, and the, and the betrayal. And he was an enemy to Messiah. But as I recall that scene, I was there. Jesus still washed Judas's feet. You say, what is that? That's what grace does. Grace is freely offered to those who reject it. You know, I could take you to Luke chapter 22, verse 51, but let me just remind you what it says. Remember there in the garden when Jesus is finally betrayed into the hands of the Jews and they'll try him and take him to the hand of the Gentiles for execution. Remember that? Remember when they, they approached Jesus in the garden? Peter, of all people, says, I happen to have a large pocket knife. I have a sword. And let's fight. Let's protect Messiah. He can't be killed. And Peter took the sword out and he cut off the ear of one of the servants in that crowd, Malchus. And you know what we read in Luke chapter 22, verse 51? Jesus says, Peter, put it away. And uh, Malchus might have been the first one to lunge towards our Lord because he got the first swipe from Peter. And our Lord picked up his ear and healed it. He extended grace to those who rejected. Because of what Peter saw, he understood grace. He understood that the grace that rescued me is the grace that requires of me to reflect the same grace. He saw it in Jesus himself. I wonder, who has wronged you the most in the last 12 months? I'll just go back 12 months. Do you have a face in your mind or faces in your mind? Either someone that's been in the news or someone that's just in your past. Maybe still in your present. Who is the one who has wronged you in the last 12 months? And my next question is, what is your posture towards them? Publicly and privately. Is it one of grace? You know, Paul's going to tell us in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21, that we are not to be overcome with evil. But as people of grace, we overcome evil with what? Good. Even Peter himself will write in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 21 to 23, these words. He'll write, You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's grace. He learned grace in the greatest school of grace because of what he heard, what he saw, but thirdly, because of what he asked. What he asked. I want you to go back to Matthew's gospel with me in chapter 18. Remember Peter asked a question, a direct question of the Lord. 
I believe that this scene in Matthew 18 is unfolding not only in Capernaum, but even more specifically in Peter's house with the other disciples. If it is Peter's house, that's Peter's son sitting on the lap of the Lord and everything that's said in Matthew chapter 18. But remember his question he asked? Look at verse 21. Jesus had just talked about how the, the, uh, the shepherd goes and pursues those sheep that have gone astray, and we would call that church rescue or church discipline. In verse 21, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? By the way, Peter's thinking he's extending grace. Our Lord had already spoken on, on, uh, on forgiveness of, in all places in the Sermon on the Mount and how to pray. If you don't forgive others, it's, it's, it's because you're not a forgiven person. And so Peter's taking the going rate of the rabbis, which was three sins. I don't, have to re- I don't have to forgive you for a fourth sin of the same type. And Peter says, I'm doubling the bad guys and adding one. And, and so give him some credit here. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And the point isn't 490. Don't go there. The point is, Peter, you need to go through this life Always maintaining a posture ready to be reconciled to the people who wrong you even before they desire it. That's the point. And then he tells this amazing story for the rest of chapter 18 of an unworthy servant forgiven an unpayable debt of 10,000 talents. And how that same servant wouldn't forgive a much lesser debt to a fellow servant. Peter asks this question. And what did he learn? What do you mean what he asked? He learned this, that God's grace gives the only traction for true forgiveness. If you're faced with someone, and it might be one of those faces you had in your mind just a moment ago, you're faced with someone that has wronged you at the deepest level, and you're supposed to have a posture of forgiveness towards them, even if the wrong was over an extended amount of time, and the answer is yes. You say, how do I do that? Well, this is definitely not a posture you can work up in your own strength. What you need to do is not meditate on how deep that hurt was. That was hurt. Whatever they've done to you was serious. I don't want to take anything away from that. As a matter of fact, it's so serious it can't be compared with any other wrong in the universe except one. And it's the wrong that we as sinners had committed against God. And all of his holiness. Ours was a sin debt that dwarfs anything we'll ever suffer from someone else. And we've been forgiven. And Peter learned that God's grace gives the only traction for true forgiveness. I so appreciate what John MacArthur says in his book on forgiveness. It's from that book, The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness. And he says this right at the beginning of the book. As he's setting sail for what he's going to teach. He says this on page 7 of my copy. Early in my pastoral ministry, I noticed an interesting fact. Nearly all the personal problems that drive people to seek pastoral counsel, listen, are related in some way to the issue of forgiveness. The typical counselee's most troublesome problems would be significantly diminished and in some cases solved completely by a right understanding of what Scripture says about forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you some amazing stories of the power of forgiveness in the counseling room. 
where there had been different types of abuse, where there had been multiple adulteries, where there have been secret addictions and control. And I've seen God not only rescue, but through his word, nothing I said, through his word and spirit, God rescues those people that were guilty of such horrible wrongs. And that's amazing to see. But even equally so amazing is watching that God puts forgiveness in the hearts of those that were sinned against in those situations. And it's a whole universal rescue. That's the power of forgiveness. And Peter learned that. That as a grace person, he needed to understand forgiveness because he was a person of grace. There's a fourth reason why he had a great foundation in grace, and it's what he experienced. What he experienced. Just jot down two chapters from the Gospel of John on this. It's what we preached on in our last series message. And, and I, I want you to remember that that series is available on Sermon Audio. In John chapter 18, Peter says, I'm not going to betray you. And What does he end up doing in John 18? Betraying Jesus. I don't even know the man. In case you, didn't, in case you don't understand it, I'm going to confirm that three times and even curse. I don't know Jesus. It's chapter 18. Chapter 21, our Lord is restoring this fallen brother three times in front of the disciples. This is what he experienced. What did he experience? He experienced this, that God's grace repeatedly rescues the unworthy. Even the worst case situation, the blatant denial of any association with Jesus, three times. Jesus came for him, just like he said he would. If one of my sheep goes astray, the footsteps they're going to hear behind them are mine. I'm coming for them. And you've heard the footsteps of Christ coming for you to rescue you how many times? It teaches you grace. Maybe right now you hear the footsteps behind you. Because what you're involved in or what you're planning, what you're fantasizing about. The footsteps behind you are your shepherd coming for you. That's what grace does. It repeatedly rescues the unworthy. On the side of a plumber's van in South Africa were these words, there's no place too deep, too dark, or too dirty for us. I love that. And you know what? That's on the side of the van called grace as well. But what else? He had a great foundation. Yes, he did. But it's because of what he learned. Not just what he heard and what he saw and what he asked and what he experienced, but what he learned. Go with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Of course, now the Lord's crucifixion and resurrection and ascension have happened the Spirit has come on the day of Pentecost. The church has been birthed. And it's been heavily Jewish up to this point. There are thousands of regenerated Jews, not only in Jerusalem, but scattered in this area, in that area of the world at this time. 
But it's been highly Jewish up to this point until we get to chapter 10. And of all people, it's Peter in the spotlight. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 9. On the next day as they were on their way, these are, this is a delegation from Cornelius, a Gentile. He'd been told by an angel to go to this city, to this place, and get Peter and bring him back here. He's got something to say to you. So on the next day as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and was desiring to eat. Nothing's worse than being hungry than falling asleep and dreaming about it. Dreaming about pizza. Dreaming about Captain Crunch French toast. Want me to stop? Okay, back to the text. He was hungry, and he was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And and he saw the sky open, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures of the earth, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. And then the Gentiles show up. You know this text. You know this chapter. He's going to go with the Gentiles, not only to their hometown, but into a Gentile home, which he never would have done before as a Jew. But because God was saying, don't call things unclean anymore that I call clean. That was God saying, this good news is more, is more than just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles. You go and give my message. And of course, there was a great salvation. The Spirit came and the harvest was seen and the Gentiles received the good news. And even had the same evidence as the Jews on the day of Pentecost. When Peter is reporting to the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, verses 6 through 11, he says, listen, I'm going to tell you what happened that day at Cornelius' house. Verse 7, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that By my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testifies to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, a Jewish yoke, neither neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He's just saying, look, God had to break me free from a narrow view of This is only about the Jews to the fact that this gospel is to reach the nations. You see, what did he learn? That God's grace trumps my preferences. Whether they are cultural preferences, people preferences, or practice preferences. As they're discussing in Acts chapter 15 at Jerusalem Council, it's even going to come down to what they eat. Peter says, I might have mine, and I might have my familiar safe thing. And and what grace does is it explodes that. And makes my vision even larger. And makes one of the grossest sins, the sin of prejudice. In all directions. So I think we would agree that Peter had the strongest foundation of grace you could have. 
He'd learned to crawl. And then he learned to walk. And now he's learning to run. That's a strong foundation. But even the best of foundations may give way when tested. I want you to see, secondly, his temporary stumble in grace. I'm just going to take you to one passage for this. Go with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. This is, this is another big stumble for Peter. And it's going to come at a cost. It always does. You know that some of the believers in Christ from Jerusalem, and there were many, some of them, still couldn't let go of the Mosaic Law and insisting on circumcision of all things. And that's the main reason that we're writing here, Paul's writing to Galatians, the issue was circumcision. And keeping of the law in order to make sure you're saved. And that's why Paul is writing this. That's why we had the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 to set it straight that it's by grace alone. And as Paul writes this, he has to share some difficult news about well, of all people, Peter. Galatians chapter 2, and look at verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, in front of everyone, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, from Jerusalem, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they, the Judaizers came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, Cephas, in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Peter, snap out of it. In spite of all that Peter had heard and saw and asked and experienced and learned, he stumbled. He was crawling and then walking and then running and then he fell. What was his stumble fueled by an old familiar sin that we all know too well. It was fueled by the fear of man. The fear of man. Exactly what Peter, or what Paul opens Galatians with. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, Peter, excuse me, Paul lays out what's on his heart and it's the fear of man and he's going to tell you after that how Peter crashed and burned on this very point. Galatians 1 verse 10. Am I seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Sounds a lot like what we read in, in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. The fear of man is a snare to trap. Ed Welch, in his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, says, We replace God with people. Instead of biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear other people. We fear people because they can expose us. We fear people because they can ridicule us or reject us. We fear people because they can threaten us or attack us. And the fear of man that we wrestle with, every last one of us, even took the likes of Peter down. Lou Priolo, in his book, Pleasing People, says... 
The fear of man is a two-sided coin. On one side is the approval, a desire for approval, and on the other side is the fear of rejection. I like to say it's a math equation. The fear of man is I, my acceptance is based on my performance and my appearance. It's the pride of life that John would write about in 1 John 2.16. Peter's, Peter's fall here, his stumble in grace, was because of the fear of man. What do other people think about me? But how was it overcome? By the rest of the conversation that Paul likely said to Peter, and he's also rehearsing here as propositional statements to his readers. It's the gospel. Look at verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God, and I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live by faith, uh, life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself, gave himself up for me. So I do not nullify the grace of God. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. What is Paul done in verses 15 to 21, he's reminding Peter, he's reminding his readers, he's reminding us that the only answer when you fall in your understanding and reflection of grace is to just marvel again at the grace that rescued you. That's where you start again. You return to that first lesson in grace. It's what he heard that God's grace is treasured at the heart level. This is quite a confrontation. Two titans, Paul and Peter. We don't have a record of Peter's response to this confrontation. But we do have record of where Peter ended up. There will be 15 years, roughly, of silence from Peter after this event. But I want you to see, finally, his strong finish in grace. Because as he's going through those 15 quiet years, you, you want to know, right? You want to know, did he get it? Did Peter go back to, to crawling so that he could walk again and so that he could run again? And the answer is, you, you figure it out. But I want to point out a few verses in 1 Peter, including what he breaks the 15-year silence with. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He calls them chosen. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled, sprinkled with his blood. Look at this. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Fullest measure. 
Not a bad start to break the 15 years of silence. Look at verse 10, chapter 1. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiry. Look at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 3, verse 7, written to the husbands. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor, look at this, as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of of God, chapter 5, verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud. And boy, didn't Peter love this Old Testament verse. But he gives grace to the humble. Chapter 5, verse 10. After you've suffered for a little while, I love this title, the God of all grace. And look at verse 12. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. You've got to crawl. And you walk. And then you can run. Peter's saying, stand. Did he get it? I think so. Those 15 years, which we're going we're gonna to study a little bit two weeks from today in our final stu- biographical study of him. We're going to have some clues as to what was going on in those 15 years. But something full of grace overcame Peter. And yes, he finishes well. As a matter of fact, his last recorded words in Scripture are at the end of 2 Peter 3. And he says this, grow in the grace, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying the growth never ends. Keep growing. And of all people telling us that, it's Peter. Like Peter, we must learn to crawl. And then we must, need, we must learn to walk, and then we, can, then we can run. But we will fall, and we are restored. How do you do that? By simply relearning grace. What you heard, that God's grace is treasured at the heart level. Relearn of what you saw, that God's grace is freely offered to those who reject it. Relearn what you asked. How many times do I have to forgive someone? Relearn what you've experienced, that God's grace repeatedly rescues the unworthy. And relearn what you learned, that God's grace trumps my personal preferences. You need grace. I need grace. We get grace, and we show grace, the grace that rescues you requires you to reflect the same grace to others. So once again, I find myself thanking 
Peter and his example of what it means to relearn grace. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, for capturing these snapshots from Peter's life, of everything he had learned from you about this grace in which he stands, and yet that grace continued to pursue him, even as a Christian, to rescue him and us whenever we stop reflecting the grace that we say rescued us. Thank you for the sweet doctrine. Thank you for the freedom of this life. Thank you for the faith that introduced us to this grace in which we stand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.